This is the message given by Pastor James Lim during the evening worship service at Faith Presbyterian Church, Long Beach, California, for February 18th, 2024. The title of the message is, When the Godly Are Gone. If you turn in your Bibles with me to Psalm 12, we continue through uh, uh, select psalms in the evening. Psalm 12, verses 1 through 8. Uh, Hear now the reading of God's holy word. To the choir master, according to the Sheminith, a psalm of David. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips the tongue that makes great boasts, those who say with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us, who is master over us. Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them, You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. The grass withers and the flower fade, but the word of our God stands forever. You know, we live in a time when Christianity seems to be on the decline here in America, in the Western Western world. We look at the statistics uh, and over the five, last five years, we've seen what has been described as the largest shift away from Christianity in the history of America. Uh, in Jim Davis and Michael Graham's book, The Great Dechurching, uh, according to uh, recent statistics and surveys, 16 million people uh, over, over the course of since the, uh, the pandemic have just simply stopped going to church for various reasons. Um, We have not seen that kind of shift uh, in in a few hundred years. And and if we believe the trends, uh, the trajectory of evangelical Christianity and, and maybe Christianity as a whole, we are going to look very much like Europe, where... You know, there are so few Christians that many people throughout their lifetime may never actually encounter a, a born-again evangelical Protestant Christian. And it seems like we're heading that way if you believe the statistics. But uh, sometimes they're wrong. Many times they are. They're, they don't take into account the influx of Christians uh, from the developing world, like South America, Africa, Asia. Uh, they don't take into account that, um, that, it's, it, that it's possible that many nominal Christians are no longer calling themselves Christians and stop going to church. And so it made no difference to begin with because they were only Christians in name only, but not real Bible-believing, born-again Christians. But, but nonetheless, Christianity is heading towards the, that um, status as a minority religion. 
that it is the the number of people, the group of people who call themselves Christians are going to become smaller and smaller. And it's going to be harder and harder to find evangelical Christians, let alone evangelical churches. But thankfully, in the rest of the world, there is a small revival going on. And even rumblings of revival happening here in America, that people are realizing that they're not anchored in reality. There's no, there is no objective truth by which they can see things. And then they see how Christians are living. They see uh, the stability and the assurance and the peace and the joy that Christians have because they are firmly anchored in a truth that does not change. So in a changing world, uh, they, they stay put. They can find peace and assurance uh, in the truth of God's word and in, in the gospel. And it's very attractive for postmodern people. It's very attractive for, for those who uh, have a hodgepodge, uh, buffet-style uh, approach to their worldview. And, uh, and it really lends credence to Jesus' words that we looked at this morning being salt and light to be seasoning uh, that preserves and, and, and helps our culture and being light in, in a dark world so that people can move towards the light and see things by the light. And so we need only to be who God saved us to be in order to be attractive. And sometimes I wonder if we're not as attractive as churches and as individuals because we are not living as distinctively as we could. But if we really were as distinctive as, as God calls us to be, we would be absolutely considered weird and, and we would stick out like sore thumbs, but we would also be very attractive. Um, so here, uh, this makes this, tonight this psalm helps us consider what, what to do when Christianity seems to be shrinking culturally and politically because of social pressures or persecution, right? Uh, what do we do uh, if in America uh, it was illegal to be a Christian and we became like China or like the Middle East where if you became a Christian or you went to church, you would most likely be arrested and go to jail? Like what would, what would Christianity look like, right? How would we see ourselves in our church family and fellow Christians, what would you do? How would you respond when the faithful are disappearing, when the godly are gone? Here tonight in Psalm 12, the psalmist tells us how to respond when God's people are disappearing, when God's people are persecuted and oppressed. So let's look at how we ought to respond when the faithful are vanishing among the children of men. First, the psalmist tells us to call out to God for help. This, is always, this should always be the first response in any given situation, especially in times of persecution. Now, we're not sure exactly what's going on, but the psalmist seems, uh, sees that God, that God's faithful people are disappearing. Right? Some may have been killed for following the Lord, like many of the Old Testament prophets. 
Some may have simply decided to go with the flow and follow the idolatry of the rest of Israel because the social and cultural and pressure was too great. So what does the psalmist do in light of these circumstances? Look at what he does. He cries out to God with a lament. Verse 1, Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished among the children of men. <laughs> this is a different kind of great dechurching, so to speak, that people are, are either forcefully dechurched by, by persecution and death, or they're choosing it for themselves because it's easier and more comfortable. Verse 2 makes it sound like the wicked are lying about the faithful to where they're pushed to stop following the Lord or being led astray. Look at what it says there. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor, right? Uh, Christianity is intolerant. It's uh, all the different phobias, you name it, right? Uh, it, is, um, it is oppressive. It's, it is evil, it is the source of so much injustice and oppression among, among the world and among people. And look what he goes on to say. With flattering lips and a double heart, they speak. Um, maybe on the one hand they're saying, oh, it's, I'm so, it's so neat that you're, you're a Christian, that you're following the Lord. And then they're turning to um, their fellow uh, non-believers and saying, look at these you know, crazy Christians. They're, gonna, they're going to uh, hurt the rest of us. And so we need to start to clamp down on their freedoms. Maybe if, they, if we make, it, make sure that they shut their mouths and don't share the gospel with anyone, uh, or uh, if, they, you know, if they keep their religion to themselves and don't try to impose their values on us, like abortion, right? uh, being against same-sex marriage, uh, all the cultural uh, things that, that Scripture calls evil, but our culture calls good. Uh, maybe uh, if they stop that, then we'll leave them alone if they leave us alone. And so there's that cultural pressure to not be distinctive and not live out uh, their, our Christian faith. Then the psalmist cries out to God for justice. Right? Not only a lament, but justice with an imprecatory prayer. Now let me just say an imprecatory prayer is simply a prayer uh, to punish Evildoers or prayer, a prayer to punish uh, uh, injustice and, and those who do, would do evil. Look at what he says there in verse 3. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips. The tongue, make, the tongue makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Uh, this just reminds us of a, a few important truths. One, words reflect what's already in our hearts. Right? If we take what Jesus says in the Gospels, that out of the abundance of the heart, our mouths speak. That our, mouth, our, our mouths, our tongues, are indicative of what's already in our hearts. It's like a barometer. Right? It's kind of like, like the washing machine with the, you know, when, when it's washing and there's a glass door and you can see exactly what's in there, right? Or, or maybe it's, it's like, um, I think I've used this before, it is like uh, the sound, this plug-in for a speaker that goes straight into our hearts 
and it amplifies what's in our hearts and our mouths speak it. If our hearts are filled with anger and bitterness, that's what's going to come out of our mouths. And so here, the flattery and boasting of the wicked is evidence of the evil in their hearts. Because throughout scripture, those who would boast and those who would flatter were indicative of those who are wicked. That What do they boast about? They boast about themselves and not with God. That's why uh, in, in, the, in Paul's letters, when he says, let those who boast, boast in the Lord, it, it is an allusion back to the Old Testament that the pinnacle of idolatry and of pride is when people boast, not in God, but in themselves. Look at what I have done. Right? It reminds you, reminds us of, of Nebuchadnezzar's boast when he looked over his whole city uh, of Nineveh and he says, look what I have done. I've made this city and then God struck him with madness. And the flattery, you know, they're stroking each other's egos. Oh, you're so great. You're so beautiful. You're so rich. You're so strong. You're this and that. Uh, rather than giving God the glory. And so it's indicative. It's, it's a barometer of, of the depth of sin and depravity, the disintegration of the culture away from biblical truth and values. Um, and so it's indicative there. The second truth that we see is that these words uh, show us show us how if 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 boasting shows a boasting in self and not in God and the values that God calls the people of God to are completely ignored by the people then there's going to be oppression there's going to be injustice uh, it's really interesting that the most heinous injustices and and crime and persecution, genocide, if you will, are done by atheists. Now, does, I'm not I'm not saying that Christ, you know people self self described Christians or religious people can't do evil things, but it's just really interesting that atheism sets up this whole moral worldview and order that allows a person to realize that they can get away with anything. If there is no God uh, who can bring about justice and punish evil, then I can get away with whatever I want because I don't believe in God. See that? Stalin, Hitler, uh, Mao, uh, Castro, um, uh, all the Kims in North Korea, (laughs) is if you don't believe in in a God of who, who will, will bring final judgment and justice uh, to every evil deed, then you're not going to feel accountable to, to do anything uh, that, uh, that keeps you from doing what is evil because you have no fear of, of final punishment. So you're just going to do it. Uh, And this points us then to why people and governments persecute the people of God. Because Christianity speaks the truth of God's existence, sovereignty, and supremacy. It speaks to the truth about the true nature of idolatry and rival gods. That there really are no gods. 
uh, uh, except the Lord. And when we touch people's idols, we touch a very sore and sensitive spot for them. That, that sometimes people's atheism uh, is their God. And if we tell them you know, that there is a God, then they are going to fight tooth and nail to protect that truth. And anything to undermine it uh, is going to be uh, is going to be um, a threat to them, and so they fight back with fury and seek to snuff Christians out, because we dare to tell the truth about the falsity of their gods. Uh, two things to take away from these verses. Uh, first, we find ourselves, uh, again, when we find ourselves in trouble, the first thing we have to do is to cry out to God for help. And this seems easy enough, right? But many times, if not almost every time, we only go to God after we've exhausted all that we can do. I don't know if this is your experience, but this is mine, is that when I find myself in trouble or I need help, I only go to God as my last resort only after I've tried to do everything in my own strength, in my own power. And there's a kind of unbelief there. There's a deep unbelief that if God isn't the first person that we go to for help, who are we going to for help? Right? When we find ourselves in trouble. And so... What's the first thing that the psalmist does here? He cries out to the Lord for help. And so that's a lesson for you and for me. No matter how small, how seemingly insignificant our troubles may seem, should we assume that we can take care of it? And then when we find out that we are in in over our heads, then we go to the Lord in prayer. The Lord the Lord is a Lord who is jealous for his own glory. He wants us to go to him first, second, third, last, always, to be so dependent upon him, uh, so dependent upon him that the Apostle Paul says, pray always, pray, un- pray without ceasing. Why? Because prayer is not just something we do, it's how we live. And so whenever we find ourselves in trouble, go to the Lord, however small it may seem. Secondly, we can pray imprecatory psalms, right? We can pray that God would punish our enemies, to punish those who would do evil. But in this in-between age of grace, in the now and the not yet, in, in the coming of Christ and the first coming and the second coming, In this in-between, we ought to pray not against our enemies, but for our enemies. This is the grace by which we ought to to pray and to live in this gospel age. Jesus said in Matthew 5, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. See, imprecatory prayers uh, point us to God's final judgment. Right? We, we, we ought to and we should pray for, for God to bring about a final justice and judgment against all evil and injustice for the end of history on Judgment Day. That's okay. 
But until then, we also ought to pray for God to save our enemies, to turn the other cheek, to go to extra mile, to pray for those who would persecute us and hate us, mock us, even kill us. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's, that's what Jesus did for you and for me in the midst of his enemies. And so we ought to bless those who would curse us, love those who hate us. This is what the Lord did for us in the giving of his son in the gospel, that while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. While we were at enmity with him, through Christ on the cross, he reconciled us to himself. And so now, as gospel people, as Christians, the Lord calls us to do likewise. And this is the Old Testament. And so in the New Testament, in, in the New Covenant, we pray for our enemies. Uh, secondly, let's move on to verses 5 and 6. We must also cry out to God in the midst of our suffering and our need. When we pray, God promises to answer. Look at what he says in, number, in verse 5. Because the poor are plundered, because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. You see that? God promises to arise and answer our prayers. And this is what it means to cry out to our covenant God and call him Lord. That he has promised that if and when we call out to him as our covenant Lord, he will come to rescue us. He will redeem us. This is the, how, why the psalmist uses throughout the, uh, verse, throughout the psalm in verses 1 and 3, the covenant name of Yahweh, right? You can see the, the tetragrammaton, right? The Lord in, in capital letters. And then how does God answer and describe himself in relationship to what he's going to do for God's people? He uses, himself, he uses Yahweh. He's, I, the Lord, verse 5, uh, will arise. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. See, the promise of God as he answers uh, forces us to go back to God's word. It reminds us to remember and ever keep before us God's promises, God's uh, words of grace and comfort uh, that he refines and purifies us with through in our fiery trials. Uh, as he remembers or as he Here's God promise that he will arise and do what he, what he promises to do. Look at what he goes on to say uh, in verse 6. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You see, the psalmist is saying that when we experience persecution and suffering, God's word is going to be refined in our lives. Or it's going to, God's, God's word is going to have a refining effect in our hearts. When, it go, when we go through fiery trials and we are hiding God's word in our hearts and the heat of the trial purifies us like a crucible, God's word shows itself to be pure. And when we experience the, the purifying and the refining power of God's word in our hearts through those trials, then we ourselves, our faith, will be refined and become more and more pure. 
Have you experienced, you probably experienced this in your life where you've read God's word, you've memorized God's word, memorized God's promises to be with us, to provide for all of our needs, to heal us, to help us, to remind us of, of that we have eternal life, that our sins are forgiven, that we are righteous in his sight, that we are being made holy, that we are persevering by his grace and power, and the promise and hope of glory is guaranteed. And it is those words, when we are in the midst of our trials, that prove themselves to be absolutely true as we experience those trials. Like, uh, uh, I remember one time, you know, we, we were, <clears throat> this was maybe when I was in seminary and, or maybe we, when, when I was just getting a stipend as an intern uh, in the PCA. And I just remember, you know, we, there were bills that were coming due and we had, we didn't have enough money in the bank and we were asking the Lord, you know, the Lord, you, Lord, you promised that you would provide for our every need and, uh, and our bank account is, is short, so we don't know what we're going to do. And so we just prayed and we trusted and then like the day before we needed to write the check, you know, a, a, a check comes in from a mysterious donor. And we, and you did, and we didn't tell anybody of our need. Uh, and, it, and, it, and, that, and God's word that he will always provide for us, right? He'll never, never leave us nor forsake us. He'll always be with us. That the, uh, that the foxes, uh, that the grass of the, uh, and the, and the uh, flowers of the field uh, are provided for, but how much more is God going to provide for his children, right? The Gentiles, you know, worry about what we're going to eat, what we're going to uh, wear, but not so with the children of God, right? Those truths, those promises uh, in our hearts as we're being refined show themselves through those trials to be true. And that's what the, the psalmist is doing here. This reminds me of um, uh, the late Bruce Hunt's biography, uh, an OPC missionary to Korea, in, in his book, For a Testimony, when he was imprisoned, the Japanese took away his Bible. And so what he did was he got uh, maybe, you know, pieces of chalk or maybe a rock to, to chisel into the to the wall, he he would write down all the Bible verses that he could remember, and then he would remind himself. Uh, and he would preach those truths to himself. And if he was transferred, then the, the words would still be there for the next person. But it was those words that he hid in his heart that anchored his faith in Christ and didn't fade away when he suffered. They only showed that through heaven and that though heaven and earth may fade away, God's word is eternal. And this is why it's so important for us to memorize and hide God's word in our hearts so that they can purify and refine us in our trials. See, there, there's, we, can, we, we can persevere trials simply by faith, but we will not be refined as we should be if, it's not, if we are not bound to God's word, so that through the word, we're being purified in those trials. Finally, we not only cry out and call out to God, but we must also confess our confidence in God amidst our trials. And if you look at the pro progression of thought here from verses one through six, 
Uh, It's an ever-growing confidence in God, in prayer and through his word. And then grounded in the confidence of prayer and God's word, the psalmist then now confesses his confidence in God himself. Do you see that? He's, he's growing in his confidence in prayer, in God's word, God's promises, and now he's confessing his confidence in God. Look at verse 7. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side the wicked prowl as vileness is exalted among the children of man. You see that? He's confessing with certainty that God will keep them and guard them even when it doesn't seem like it. Even when they are prowling and circling like a pack of wolves, he knows that God will keep him, not just for a while, but forever. And this ought to be our confidence in times of persecution and trial. Why? Because our faith has to be grounded in God, not in our circumstances. We can't put our hope and happiness in our circumstances, uh, but in God. Because it's easy to turn our circumstances into idols, right? God, we love you if we're happy, if our circumstances are to our liking, if we're comfortable, if we're not hurting, if we're not suffering, if we have all that we need, if you to give that to us, God, then we'll be happy. Uh, what God wants is a confidence in him regardless of our circumstances, to ground our hope, our peace, our assurance in God, no matter the circumstances, because that proves that our hope is in God, not in our circumstances. So when we pray for God to take away our troubles, even more than that, we should pray for God to keep us and to guard us through them, to persevere through them and not apart from them, because they refine our faith. They purify the impurities in our faith. Like a refiner's fire and the gold in a crucible, trials refine our faith to make it pure, stronger, heartier. So that like the psalmist, we know God is going to keep us and guard us. And all of this points us to the fulfillment of this psalm in the persecution and prayers of Jesus, the godly one, the faithful one who vanished among the children of men when he was lied about, persecuted, falsely accused, arrested, tortured, and crucified and killed, that he is the godly one who is gone, who suffered and died for our sins and for our salvation. He was the poor, poor and needy one who groaned upon the tree. And because Jesus bore our sins, suffered and died, in the gospel by faith, we are saved. We are chosen, predestined, and saved for eternal life. And in the gospel, we can confidently persevere in faith because he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. All that the Father has given the Son, he has not lost even one. See, the confidence of this, the psalmist is the confidence that in Jesus, that though he, he suffered and died, through his suffer, suffering, death, and resurrection, uh, he will keep us, he will guard us from this generation forever, even though he was surrounded, even though he was persecuted, even though he was, was killed. And because, because Jesus experienced all of this, we now 
will never be separated from the love of God. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is how we persevere. This is how we pray. This is how we trust the Lord in the midst of persecution, even when our numbers seem to be dwindling, because we are the remnant of the people of God, and he will preserve us forever and ever. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. We thank you that even when the godly are gone and the, and the faithful are vanished from the face of the earth, uh, you protect us, you guard us, you keep us, because Jesus died so that we might be forever with you. Lord, in, in this time of persecution and dwindling numbers, help us not to fi be fixed upon numbers and, and hope in our circumstances, but to anchor our confidence and hope in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.